Chapter Ten, Book One of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book One, Chapter Ten, Ranulph Rookwood. Fur. Yes, Francisco, he hath left his curse upon me. Fran. How? Fur. His curse, I dost comprehend what that word carries, shot from a father's angry breath. Unless I tear poor Felisada from my heart, he hath pronounced me heir to all his curses. Surely the brothers. There is nothing, I trust, my dear young friend and quondam pupil, said Dr. Small, as the door was closed, that weighs upon your mind beyond the sorrow naturally incident to an affliction severe as the present. Forgive my apprehensions if I am wrong. You know the affectionate interest I have felt ever for you, an interest which, I assure you, is now eyes diminished, and which I will excuse my urging you to unburden your mind to me, assuring yourself that whatever may be your disclosure, you will have my sincere sympathy and commiseration. I may be better to advise with you, should counsel be necessary, than others, from my knowledge of your character and temperament. I would not anticipate evil, and am perhaps unnecessarily apprehensive. But I own, I am startled at the incoherence of your expressions, coupled with your sudden and almost mysterious appearance at this distressing juncture. Answer me. Has your return been the result of mere accident? Is it to be considered one of those singular circumstances which almost look like fate and baffle our comprehension? Or were you nearer home than we expected, and received the news of your father's demise through some channel unknown to us? Satisfy my curiosity, I beg of you, upon this point. Your curiosity, my dear sir, replied Ranulph gravely and sadly, will not be decreased when I tell you that my return has neither been the work of chance, for I came fully anticipating the dread event which I find realised, nor has it been occasioned by any intelligence derived from yourself or others. It was only, indeed, upon my arrival here that I received full confirmation of my apprehensions. I had another, a more terrible summons to return. "'What summons? You perplex me!' exclaimed Small, gazing with some misgivings into the face of his young friend. "'I am myself perplexed, sorely perplexed,' returned Ranulph. "'I have much to relate, but I pray you bear with me to the end. I have that on my mind which, like guilt, must be revealed.' "'Speak then fearlessly to me,' said Small, affectionately pressing Ranulph's hand, "'and assure yourself beforehand of my sympathy.' It will be necessary, said Ranulph, to preface my narrative by some slight allusion to certain painful events. And yet, I know not why I should call them painful, excepting in their consequences, which influenced my conduct in my final interview between my father and myself. An interview which occasioned my departure for the continent, and which was of a character so dreadful that I would not even revert to it, were it not, a necessary preliminary to the circumstance I am about to detail. 
When I left Oxford, I passed a few weeks alone in London. A college friend whom I accidentally met introduced me during a promenade in St. James's Park to some acquaintances of his own who were taking an airing in the mile at the same time, a family whose name was Mowbray, consisting of a widow lady, her son and daughter. This introduction was made in compliance with my own request. I had been struck by the singular beauty of the younger lady, whose countenance had a peculiar and inexpressible charm to me, from its marked resemblance to the portrait of the Lady Eleanor Rookwood, whose charms and unhappy fate I have so often dwelt upon and deplored. The picture is there, continued Ranulph, pointing to it. Look at it, and you have the fair creature I speak of before you, the colour of the hair, the tenderness of the eyes. No, the expression is not so sad, except when... But no matter, I recognised her features at once. It struck me that upon the mention of my name, the party betrayed some surprise, especially the elder lady. For my own part, I was so attracted by the beauty of the daughter, the effect of which upon me seemed rather the fulfilment of a predestined event, originating in the strange fascination which the family portrait had wrought in my heart, that the operation of what is called love at first sight, that I was insensible to the agitation of the mother. In vain I endeavoured to rally myself. My efforts at conversation were fruitless. I could not talk. All I could do was silently to yield to the soft witchery of those tender eyes, my admiration increasing each instant that I gazed upon them. I accompanied them home. Attracted as by some irresistible spell, I could not tear myself away, so that, although I fancied I could perceive symptoms of displeasure in the looks of both the mother and the son, yet, regardless of consequences, I ventured, uninvited, to enter the house. In order to shake off the restraint which I felt my society imposed, I found it absolutely necessary to divest myself of bashfulness, and to exert such conversational powers I possessed. I succeeded so well that the discourse soon became lively and animated, and what chiefly delighted me was that she, for whose sake I had committed my present rudeness, became radiant with smiles. I had been all eagerness to seek for some explanation of the resemblance to which I had just alluded, and the fitting moment had, I conceived, arrived. I called attention to a peculiar expression in the features of Miss Mowbray, and then instanced the likeness that subsisted between her and my ancestress. "'It is the more singular,' I said, turning to the mother, "'because there could have been no affinity that I am aware of between them, "'and yet the likeness is really surprising.' "'It is not so singular as you imagine,' answered Mrs. Mowbray. "'There is a close affinity. "'That Lady Rookwood was my mother.' Eleanor Mowbray does resemble her ill-fated ancestress. Words cannot paint my astonishment. I gazed at Mrs. Mowbray, considering whether I had not misconstrued her speech, whether I had not so shaped the sounds as to suit my own quick and passionate conceptions. But no, I read in her calm, collected countenance, in the downcast glance, and sudden sadness of Eleanor, as well as in the changed and haughtily demeanour of the brother, that I had heard her rightly. Eleanor Mowbray 
was my cousin, the descendant of that hapless creature whose image I had almost worshipped. Recovering from my surprise, I addressed Mrs. Mowbray, endeavouring to excuse my ignorance of our relationship, on the plea that I had not been given to understand that such had been the name of the gentleman she had espoused. Nor was it, answered she, the name he bore at Rookwood. Circumstances forbade it, then. From the hour I quitted that house until this moment, excepting one interview with my— with Sir Reginald Rookwood, I have seen none of my family, have held no communication with them. My brothers have been strangers to me. The very name of Rookwood has been unheard, unknown, nor would you have been admitted here, had not accident occasioned it. I ventured now to interrupt her, and to express a hope that she would suffer an acquaintance to be kept up, which had so fortunately commenced, and which might most probably bring about an entire reconciliation between the families. I was so earnest in my expostulations, my whole soul being in them, that she inclined a more friendly ear to me. Eleanor, too, smiled encouragement. Love lent me eloquence, and at length, as a token of my success, and her own relenting, Mrs. Mowbray held forth her hand. I clasped it eagerly. It was the happiest moment of my life. I will not trouble you with any lengthened description of Eleanor Mowbray. I hope at some period or other you may still be enabled to see her and judge for yourself. For though adverse circumstances have hitherto conspired to separate us, the time for a renewal of our acquaintance is approaching, I trust, for I am not yet altogether without hope. But this much I may be allowed to say, that her rare endowments of person were only equalled by the graces of her mind. Educated abroad, she had all the vivacity of our livelier neighbours, combined with every solid qualification which we claim as more essentially our own. Her light and frolic manner was French, certainly, but her gentle, sincere heart was assuredly English. The foreign accent that dwelt upon her tongue communicated an inexpressible charm, even to the language which she spoke. I will not dwell too long upon this theme. I feel ashamed of my own prolixity, and yet I am sure you will pardon it. Ah, those bright, brief days! Too quickly were they fled. I could expatiate upon each minute, recall each word, revive each look. It may not be. I must hasten on. Darker themes await me. My love made rapid progress. I became each hour more enamoured of my new-found cousin, my whole time was passed near her. Indeed, I could scarcely exist in absence from her side. Short, however, was destined to be my indulgence in this blissful state. One happy week was its extent. I received a peremptory summons from my father to return home. Immediately upon commencing this acquaintance, I had written to my father explaining every particular attending it. This I should have done of my own free will, but I was urged to it by Mrs. Mowbray, Unaccustomed to disguise, I had expatiated upon the beauty of Eleanor, and in such terms, I fear, that I excited some uneasiness in his breast. His letter was laconic. He made no allusion to the subject upon which I had expatiated when writing to him. He commanded me to return. The bitter hour was at hand. I could not hesitate to comply. Without my father's sanction, I was assured Mrs. Mowbray would not permit any continuance of my acquaintance. 
Of Eleanor's inclinations I fancied I had some assurance, but, without her mother's consent, to whose will she was devoted, I felt, had I even been inclined to urge it, that my suit was hopeless. The letter which I had received from my father made me more than doubt whether I should not find him utterly adverse to my wishes. Agonized, therefore, with a thousand apprehensions, I presented myself on the morning of my departure. It was then I made the declaration of my passion to Eleanor. It was then that every hope was confirmed, every apprehension realized. I received from her lips a confirmation of my fondest wishes. Yet were those hopes blighted in the bud when I heard, at the same time, that their consummation was dependent upon the will of two others, whose assenting voices she feared could never be obtained. From Mrs. Mowbray I received a more decided reply. All her haughtiness was aroused. Her farewell words assured me that it was indifferent to her whether we met again as relatives or as strangers. Then was it that the native tenderness of Eleanor displayed itself in an outbreak of feeling peculiar to a heart keenly sympathetic as hers. She saw my suffering. The reserve natural to her sex gave way. She flung herself into my arms. And so we parted. With a heavy foreboding I returned to Rookwood, and, oppressed with the gloomiest anticipations, endeavoured to prepare myself for the worst. I arrived. My reception was such as I had calculated upon, and, to increase my distress, my parents had been at variance. I will not pain you and myself with any recital of their disagreement. My mother had espoused my cause, chiefly, I fear, with the view of thwarting my poor father's inclinations. He was in a terrible mood, exasperated by the fiery stimulants he had swallowed, which had not, indeed, drowned his reason, but roused and inflamed every dormant emotion to violence. He was as one insane. It was evening when I arrived. I would willingly have postponed the interview till the morrow. It could not be. He insisted upon seeing me. My mother was present. You know the restraint she usually had over my father, and how she maintained it. On this occasion, she had none. He questioned me as to every particular, probed my secret soul, dragged forth every latent feeling, and then thundered out his own determination that Eleanor never should be bride of mine. Nor would he receive under his roof her mother, the discountenanced daughter of his father. I endeavoured to remonstrate with him. He was deaf to my entreaties. My mother added sharp and stinging words to my expostulations. I had her consent, she said. What more was needed? The lands were entailed. I should at no distant period be their master, and might then please myself. This I mention in order to give you my father's strange answer. Have a care, madam, replied he, and bridle your tongue. They are entailed, tis true, but I need not ask his consent to cut off that entail. Let him dare to disobey me in this particular, and I will so divert the channel of my wealth that no drop shall reach him. I will, but why threaten? Let him do it, and approve the consequences. On the morrow, I renewed my importunities with no better success. We were alone. Ranulph, said he, you waste time in seeking to change my resolution. It is unalterable. 
I have many motives which influence me. They are inexplicable, but imperative. Eleanor Mowbray never can be yours. Forget her as speedily as may be, and I pledge myself, upon whomsoever else your choice may fix, I will offer no obstacle. But why, exclaimed I with vehemence, do you object to one whom you have never beheld? At least consent to see her. Never, he replied. The tie is sundered and cannot be reunited. My father bound me by an oath never to meet in friendship with my sister. I will not break my vow. I will not violate its conditions even in the second degree. We never can meet again. An idle prophecy which I have never heard has said that when a Rookwood shall marry, a Rookwood the end of the house draweth nigh. That I regard not. It may have no meaning, or it may have much. To me it imports nothing further than that, if you wed Eleanor, every acre I possess shall depart from you. And assure yourself this is no idle threat. I can and will do it. My curse shall be your sole inheritance. I could not avoid making some reply, representing to him how unjustifiable such a procedure was to me, in a case where the happiness of my life was at stake, and how inconsistent it was with the charitable precepts of our faith, to allow feelings of resentment to influence his conduct. My remonstrances, as in the preceding meeting, were ineffectual. The more I spoke, the more intemperate he grew. I therefore desisted, but not before he had ordered me to quit the house. I did not leave the neighbourhood, but saw him again on the same evening. Our last interview took place in the garden. I then told him that I had determined to go abroad for two years, at the expiration of which period I proposed returning to England, thrusting that his resolution might then be changed, and that he would listen to my request, for the fulfilment of which I could never cease to hope. Time, I hoped, might befriend me. He approved of my plan of travelling, requesting me not to see Eleanor before I set out, adding, in a melancholy tone, we may never meet again, Ranulph, in this life. In that case, farewell forever. Indulge no vain hopes. Eleanor can never be yours, but upon one condition, and to that you would never consent. Propose it, I cried. There is no condition I could not accede to. Rash boy, he replied. You know not what you say. That pledge you would never fulfil were I to propose it to you. But no, should I survive till you return, you shall learn it then. And now, farewell. Speak now, I beseech you, I exclaimed. Anything, everything, what you will. Say no more, replied he, walking towards the house. When you return, we will renew this subject. Farewell, perhaps forever. His words were prophetic. That parting was forever. I remained in the garden till nightfall. I saw my mother, but he came not again. I quitted England without beholding Eleanor. Did you not acquaint her by letter with what had occurred, and your consequent intentions? asked Small. I did, replied Ranulph, but I received no reply. My earnest inquiries will be directed to ascertain whether the family are still in London. It would be a question for our consideration 
whether I am not justified in departing from my father's expressed wishes, or whether I should violate his commands in so doing. We will discuss that point hereafter, replied Small, adding, as he noticed the growing paleness of his companion, you are too much exhausted to proceed. You had better defer the remainder of your story to a future period. No, replied Ranulph, swallowing a glass of water. I am exhausted, yet I cannot rest. My blood is in a fever, which nothing will allay. I shall feel more easily when I have made the present communication. I am approaching the sequel of my narrative. You are now in possession of the story of my love, of the motive of my departure. You shall learn what was the occasion of my return. I had wandered from city to city during my term of exile, consumed by hopeless passion. With little that could amuse me, though surrounded by a thousand objects of interest to others, and only rendering life endurable by severest study or most active exertion. My steps conducted me to Bordeaux. There I made a long halt, enchanted by the beauty of the neighbouring scenery. My fancy was smitten by the situation of a villa on the banks of the Garonne, within a few leagues of the city. It was an old chateau, with fine gardens bordering the blue waters of the river, and commanding a multitude of enchanting prospects. The house, which had in part gone to decay, was inhabited by an aged couple, who had formerly been servants to an English family, the members of which had thus provided for them on their return to their own country. I inquired the name. Conceive my astonishment to find that this chateau had been the residence of the Mowbrays. This intelligence decided me at once. I took up abode in the house, and a new and unexpected source of solace and delight was opened to me. I traced the paths she had traced, occupied the room she had occupied, tended the flowers she had tended, and, on the golden summer evenings, would watch the rapid waters, tinged with all the glorious hues of sunset, sweeping past my feet, and think how she had watched them. Her presence seemed to pervade the place. I was now comparatively happy, and, anxious to remain unmolested, wrote home that I was leaving Bordeaux for the Pyrenees on my way to Spain. That account arrived, observed Small. One night, continued Ranulph, tis now the sixth since the occurrence I am about to relate, I was seated in a bower that overlooked the river. It had been a lovely evening, so lovely that I lingered there, wrapped in the heavenly contemplation of its beauties. I watched each rosy tint reflected upon the surface of the rapid stream, now fading into yellow, now shining silvery white. I noticed the mystic mingling of twilight with darkness, of night with day, till the bright current on a sudden became a black mass of waters. I could scarcely discern a leaf. All was darkness, when, lo, another change. The moon was up, a flood of light deluged all around. The stream was dancing again, in reflected radiance, and I still lingering at its brink. I had been musing for some moments, with my head resting upon my hand, when, happening to raise my eyes, I beheld a figure immediately before me. I was astonished at the sight, for I had perceived no one approach, had heard no footstep advance towards me, and was satisfied that no one besides myself could be in the garden. 
the presence of the figure inspired me with undefinable awe, and, I can scarce tell why, but a thrilling presentiment convinced me that it was a supernatural visitant, without motion, without life, without substance, it seemed. Yet still, the outward character of life was there. I started to my feet. God, what did I behold? The face was turned to me. My father's face. And what an aspect, what a look. Time can never efface that terrible expression. It is graven upon my memory. I cannot describe it. It was not anger, it was not pain. It was as if an eternity of woe was stamped upon its features. It was too dreadful to behold. I would fain have averted my gaze. My eyes were fascinated, fixed. I could not withdraw them from the ghastly countenance. I shrank from it, yet stirred not. I could move, not a limb. Noiselessly gliding towards me, the apparition approached. I could not retreat. It stood obstinately beside me. I became as one half dead. The phantom shook its head with the deepest despair. And as the word, return, sounded hollowly in my ears, it gradually melted from my view. I cannot tell how I recovered from the swoon into which I fell, but daybreak saw me on my way to England. I am here, on that night, at that same hour, my father died. It was, after all, then, a supernatural summons that you received, said Small. Undoubtedly, replied Ranulph. Hmph. The coincidence, I own, is sufficiently curious, returned Small, musingly. But it would not be difficult, I think, to discover a satisfactory explanation of the delusion. There was no delusion, replied Ranulph coldly. The figure was as palpable as your own. Can I doubt, when I behold this result, could any deceit have been practised upon me at that distance, the precise time, moreover, agreeing? Did not the phantom bid me return? I have returned. He is dead. I have gazed upon a being of another world. To doubt were impious after that look. Whatever my opinions may be, my dear young friend, returned Small gravely, I will suspend them for the present. You are still greatly excited. Let me advise you to seek some repose. I am easier, replied Ranulph, but you are right. I will endeavour to snatch a little rest. Something within me tells me all is not yet accomplished. What remains? I shudder to think of it. I will rejoin you at midnight. I shall myself attend. The solemnity. Adieu. Ranulph quitted the room. Small, sighingly shook his head, and having lighted his pipe, was presently buried in a profundity of smoke and metaphysical speculation. End of Book One, Chapter Ten.